Hi everyone, this is Carrie. Welcome back to season three of OnRamp. Shane and I would like to really encourage you if you haven't listened to seasons one and two, or maybe even if you haven't listened to seasons one and two in a while, you might want to go back and listen or re-listen because there's some content in um, season three that might be confusing if you're not up to date with the things that we've already talked about. Hey everybody, this is Carrie. In the past few weeks, as our country has tried to reckon once again with violence against black bodies, even to the point of death, even with bystanders, even at the hands of people who are supposed to protect them, many people are reaching out wondering what we can do. Shane and I started this podcast a few years ago to give people of faith a jumping off point for studying and discussing race and racism. We've decided it's time to jump back in with a new season focused on right action. In that spirit, Shane will start us off with an act of prayer. Wake me up, Lord. Wake me up, Lord, so that the evil of racism finds no home within me. Keep watch over my heart, Lord, and remove from me any barriers to your grace that may oppress and offend my brothers and sisters. Fill my spirit, Lord so that I may give services of justice and peace. Clear my mind, Lord, and use it for your glory. Well, for this first episode, Carrie is going to share with us her 7E model. Thank you, Shane. Yes. um, I wanted everyone to have a sort of document or set of materials that they could come back to, um, sort of as a review and a supplement to the things we talked about in on ramp season one and two. And so just to start us off, I want to talk about a 70 model for cultural humility and anti-oppressive leadership. Um, and then we'll get into one of the first sort of more active components to that for the second part of the podcast. But um, Shane, I'll just tell you the parts of this model. Cause I think it's new to you as well. And then um you can tell me if you have any questions and then we can jump into uh, a surprise that I'll talk about later. Oh, fun. <laughs> <A> surprise. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. So in, in terms of creating cultural humility and anti-oppressive leadership, I'm just going to tell you all seven E's and then I'll tell you a little bit about what each one means. They are exposure and engagement, examination and evaluation, enact and educate and evolve. So you've heard us talk about before and you've experienced in your own lives that one of the ways that we engage with people who are different than us in a variety of ways, but we're talking mostly about race today, um, is that you come across some material that is different than the racial background or climate that you were raised in. So that could be media, art, um, food, fashion, any of those types of things. Now that you might have just come across it because somebody else put it in your way or someone else recommended it to you, or you might be actively choosing to engage. And so a couple of the things that I want to give you all access to for the sort of duration of uh, season three and beyond is um, looking at a media log, um, a sort of what are you consuming in terms of art? What are you consuming in terms of um, news? Where are you getting 
the information that you get. And then um, also some assessments of your finances and a relational assessment in terms of your um, racial diversity at this point in time. Um, examination and evaluation are what we do, what we um, think about once we've done these things. And so, for example, Shane, if you are reading a book by a person of color um, and in this situation, let's just say you're reading a book by a black woman and you start to notice um, certain ways of thinking, feeling, or behaving after reading it, you want to pay attention to that. And um, so I always say like brain, body, and behavior check. So sometimes when I'm reading a book by someone who's different than me, I, my, I can feel my heartbeat start to race. I can feel myself coming up with counter arguments to the things that they're suggesting. And I think I do that as someone who even has a couple of marginalized identities. And I wonder if you can relate to that as well. Whenever you're hearing something from someone who's coming from a different space that your natural reaction might be to feel nerves or to feel judgment or something like that. Yeah, totally. So I think that's, there's like, that's totally natural when, somebody's talking about any subject we obviously we weren't born yesterday so we come to the table with beliefs that we had beforehand right so i think anytime we hear something that's counter to that well all our preconceived beliefs are coming up in in our head right totally and we have sort of been socialized to just accept whatever first comes up and to say like well that's how i feel about it and yes. so the examination is First, a non-judgmental judging to just say, um, I'm not responsible for my first reaction, but my um, second, my, I'm not, I'm sorry, I'm not responsible for my first thought, but my second thought and my first action. And so if I do notice that I'm becoming defensive or if I'm um, sweating or something like that. I'm first just going to notice it. And then I'm going to move into evaluation, which is to ask myself, is it ist or ick, which is to say racist, classist, sexist, um, Islamophobic, any of those ist or ick kind of things. Um, so for our purposes, we're mostly thinking about, is it racist? Um, and I'm going to give a couple of links to materials that can help you see. So like, um, according to a white supremacy culture model, according to, FAR's Mechanisms of Oppressions or Sue's Microaggressions, which we, I know we did a whole episode on that um, in season one or two. Um, and we're going to evaluate, was this just a normal reaction um, and something that I'd be um, fine if I passed on to my children or something, if I'd be fine if I reacted that way again? Or is this something that I want to change now that I really give some reflection and find it to be um, racist. Any questions so far, Shane? Cool. So that's the examination, examination and evaluation. That's right. Okay. And then, like I said, where we're going to spend most of our time for these next several episodes is in enact and educate. And this is where we practice micro resistance and macro resistance strategies. And these are meant for people who are potential allies. So I want to just say that, of course, there's a tremendous amount of work going on by people who are black and other people of color um, to combat racism. But 
a lot of our initial thinking about on ramp was what can we do for white people who don't know how to engage the topic of race or racism? And so these particular strategies that we're going to talk about over the next few weeks are with new allies in mind. Um, And so, and then finally, the last step is just evolve, which is to say, (laughs) you know, I went back in preparation for this and listened to some of our old episodes, Shane, and it's like, even listening to some things we said in 2016, it's like, I wouldn't say them exactly the same way Mm -hmm. today. And I wouldn't say them exactly the same way in this week and month and year of time, um, for sure, just because we are seeing things and we're in a moment that call for us to maybe use some different language or to acknowledge some things that either weren't going on before or we were still kind of asleep to. And so that's why this is such an important part of the process is that you can't just memorize something that you learned in 2020 and still use the same vocabulary, the same authors, the same actions in 2040, because a whole host of things will have happened. And so that's... um, the last step of the process and one that's kind of easy if you are continuing to do steps one and two, which is to um, notice what you're being exposed to and to engage. Because if you're always changing your diet of what you're consuming, then it's easier to evolve, right? Because you're not just stuck with whatever someone else lays before your eyes or ears or body. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I mean, I find that for myself, it always feels like uh, an onion that I am like constantly finding the next, there's only a next layer, right? There's no That's arriving. Right. That's right. Yeah. And it's, it's really shocking because particularly I would say as a black woman, um, it would seem like maybe it's not like an onion to me. And in some ways, and in some times it does feel like I've been saying that I've been saying a version of that. You all haven't been listening to me say that, but I've been knowing that, but there are still (laughs) other ways where, um, I become more and more aware of, um, how, uh, racist behaviors and racist systems impact me, impact my family and also my white friends. Um, I, I continue to have that kind of like peeled back layer experience as well. And so again, this is just like a really brief review of this model as a a supplement to all the things that we're going to be talking about, but I thought it might be a good way to get us situated. But now we're going to start with, we're going to be talking over the next eight episodes or so. Um, about four micro resistant strategies and four macro resistant strategies. And that means system level strategies. And because um, at the time of this recording, we are really, I think, seeing some movement at the system level, people realizing the, the need for um, action beyond just that with my parent or my spouse or my children, but really to say, I've got to put my body out in the streets. I've got to call my boss on a a thing. I've got to vote, you know, whatever those things are, we're going to start with macro resistant strategies because we feel like people are feeling that right now. And then, then we'll move into four micro resistant strategies as well. So today, the first one we're going to talk about is interrogate now that sounds <laughs> intense slight something you know 
We wanted to ease into the season. Yeah, exactly. We wanted people to remember those gentle halcyon ways that we ushered you in. No, interrogate can sound a little bit um, aggressive, and it can be, but it can also be, another way of thinking about it is just questioning people and systems. And that sounds simple enough, but what I found in my years of teaching and training is that sometimes when I say like, hey, you should question your pastor on that, or you should question your boss, we all sort of, I think, have a little bit of intimidation around this topic. And so um, a lot of times what will happen is that people really can't even think of the sentence stem of how to do a question. And so I am going to, for each of these big categories, today being interrogate, I'm going to give like four examples of, of what that could be. And Shane, I'd love if you have examples of how you've done this in your life or if you, where you've seen it, if you don't want to just constantly be bragging about yourself, I don't know. Um then that'll be great. And, and then we'll just see where else the conversation takes us. So the first example of interrogation is really going back to like that elementary school uh, grammar lesson about question asking. And I'm going to start with why, um, asking the question, why? Why are we doing that? Why aren't we doing this? And then also you can throw in all those other W's. So when are we going to do something different? What's the plan? Who do I need to talk to? Um, when can I expect change? I think I might have already said that. So, um, Shane, when you hear that, I guess, do you have an example of a time you've done that? Or do you have any thoughts about like why that's so hard or what makes it easier to do that type of question asking? Yeah. So that's, that's a great question. So, um, so you're talking about, let me ask some clarifying questions of you. Oh, great. Uh, so you're talking about a time when uh, we're talking about a systemic situation. So maybe it's a job, maybe it's church, maybe it's school, an organizational situation. Yes. Where we see something that looks to us like perhaps it could be problematic or just blatantly racist or, you know, some, some level. Most of the time, no, this might not be true. A lot of times it is subtle because people are, especially in secular work environments, uh, uh, blatant racism doesn't fly most of the time. Hopefully, we're, yeah. We hope, we hope yeah. So, you know, you ask, like, why it's hard. Well, it's, it's hard because, one, we are, um, because race is a really sensitive topic, especially when... If you're bringing it up to someone and saying that they might be responsible for something that is racist. Totally. Yeah. And in, in some cases, there's this power differential that makes it like, not only is it just like, I might offend you, maybe you might. You could fire me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or at the very least make meetings very uncomfortable or, you know. Yeah. Or I could just be seen as that guy, you know. That's right. That's right. And so, yeah, I, I. I appreciate your clarifier because I think a thing I forgot to say is some of what I'm assuming when I give you these um, 
macro resistance strategies is that you've already listened to some of our other episodes around things like microaggressions or uh, appropriation. And so when we see those types of things, or when we see one of the levels of racism that we've talked about in a previous episode, what do we do? Um, how do we speak up? And so, um, yes, of course, it's it's challenging when we feel like we could be penalized or we could be that guy or that woman. But I guess what I would say and what I would beg of my white allies of faith and beyond is um, that you that we remember what it means to have privilege and that it is a privilege to be able to not be that guy. Because if I'm in a room and someone is doing something that is oppressive to me or... Um, offensive about my family or my background. Yes, I also have the choice to stay silent. And I might because I might be in even more danger than one of my white allies. Um, But I really don't have the same amount of choice and flexibility because it's who I am and it's who my people are. And so I think we have to be really honest with ourselves. And I have to do it in other areas where I'm not where I am in the majority culture. We have to be really honest with ourselves about um, okay, if I'm choosing not to poke the bear, if I'm choosing to stay silent, then um, does everybody have that same opportunity? Am I capitalizing on privilege that other people just don't have the cards to cash in? And so um, I would say that's one thing for us all to be really aware of because I think there's a, a component of white supremacy culture that's called right to comfort. And a lot of, or not a lot of, I mean, all of us who've been socialized in white supremacist countries and school systems and church systems have got an idea that white people have a right to be comfortable and to not be disrupted. And so um, while black people and other people of color and other marginalized groups have to learn to live with being considered subhuman, uh, with people mispronouncing our names, with people suggesting things about our capacity, white people have a right to comfort at all times. And so if you are choosing to be silent, then you are capitalizing on that white privilege. And of course, we all um, make choices each day and each week and season of life based on a number of things that are impacting us. But I think we have to be very self-honest and I would ask my white brothers and sisters to be very self-honest about what is really at cost if I'm going to speak up versus is it just like a feeling of I'm going to feel awkward. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you asked like a personal story and we can, we can go there if you want, but I wonder if we can just like start with a hypothetical. Sure. If someone's, you're at a work, it's a work environment. Mm -hmm. And you notice that the boss, the supervisor, the CEO, whoever is for special projects, always only appointing white people to take charge. Yeah. Um, you know, real wild, crazy. I can't can't imagine. uh, Yeah. My brain can't really expand to think that crazy, but I'll try. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you know, one, if, if you're a white person there, um, I would, one, not assume that I would be the first person to bring that up. We don't know, like, 
how the people of color in the room and the company have been advocating behind the scenes. Totally. And it, it might, it would help if it is not only people of color speaking up about those problems. Absolutely. And I, I love this because I think we're going to talk about this more in a later episode, but in some ways uh, I think a white person can ask themselves, like if I've got privilege and there's nothing I, we talk, I just listened to this episode in preparation for this. We, if we can't do anything to not have privilege, people just give it to us. Then we can choose to capitalize on that in two ways. We can choose to capitalize it on way, capitalize on it in ways that benefit ourselves, or we can choose to levy that privilege on behalf of other people. And so um, I think that's exactly what you're talking about is that, yeah, perhaps either a, people of color have already been begging for this or saying this or wondering about this, and nobody's listening because we know that systemically black voices are undervalued compared to white voices, or maybe other people there are black people in your company or church or neighborhood or whatever who wish that they could say something. But again, maybe because of an intersection with um, socioeconomic status or religion or whatever, um, have a reason that they have not been able to say anything. And they are, they are hoping for an ally to be able to either join with or even just like, give me a break from the day to day grind of being black and you just do the work white person. Yeah, yeah, right. Sure. And so, um, you know, so I think that that, that matters in the way that you're talking about levying, levying our privilege, uh, to, to speak up. And so that people of color aren't the only ones speaking up in those situations. And then also, um, you know, you tell me what you think about this, but it always helps to come in, uh, saying, how can I help you with this situation? Oh yeah. Like, so if I could come in and say, say to that boss, that supervisor, whoever, um, uh, Hey, I think that, um, so-and-so may be really good to lead up, lead with this or, or, you know, whatever to specifically, uh, call out a person of color who is capable, who would be good to, to take the lead um you could even if you were the person who's been given that responsibility say actually i think in my place like this person would be better for that right totally and then you could also just and probably should in many circumstances uh just say um hey i've noticed that it just seems like the people who get noticed for leadership roles here um, happen to never be people of color. Yeah. To just bring it, put it out on the open and, and just say that. And we can assume good intentions. Like I'm sure that that's not purposeful, but I actually think that we would be a better organization if in our leadership structure, we were represented by a more diverse group of people. Yeah. And I think what you're saying is important and how you're saying is important because you know, with each of these topics that we're going to talk about, there's sort of a um, an, a natural escalation from often when my students are asking, like, what to do about something, I tell them, you know, first be 
kind, then be firm, then get help. And I'm not sure if I made that up or if it's a thing that everybody knows or whatever, but I've, I say it. And, um, and so like, I will always be clear that there are times when interrogation should feel like interrogation. It should be like, we, we've had enough of you not listening to the ways these systems are oppressing people of color. But early on, there are times when you're in that be kind phase. And like you said, maybe gracious. And I think a lot of times, at least when I'm training young people, um, they can't imagine if, especially if they're getting fired up about something, they'll come to me and they'll say something like, uh, Miss Fisher, uh, there's this thing happening at my work, um, or in my church or whatever. And I don't know, let's say a white person is always talking over people of color. Every single time a person of color tries to talk, uh, a white person just walks all over them. And I just don't know what to say or how I can say anything, Um, And what I pick up on is that a lot of times like what they're envisioning is like the only thing I can say is that you're a horrible person and I wish you were dead. And since I can't say that, I can't say Say anything. anything. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And it's like, you know, at least somewhat according to personality, somewhat according to relationships, somewhat according to where you are in this process, you might just start by saying, hey, I've noticed as just like you've just modeled. And so some of it is getting out of our heads of like the only way to ask a question is uh, aggressively. That's actually another tenet of white supremacy culture, which is the, the fear of open conflict. Mm -hmm. And so then actually another reason sometimes people of color don't speak up about something in a system is that, um, they're, they're called, um, aggressive or um, mean or not team players because they haven't put on a saccharine smile and 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 used a sweet oh. voice Carrie I mean like that, those like literal words the list you just said was exactly what people were saying about Colin Kaepernick when he was kneeling yeah. like he's putting his personal whatever in front of the team and he's not being a team player like literally right right uh and and so like that's like a great example on the national stage and and very blatant of like here's this guy that thinks racism is more important than football you know and not putting his putting his personal stuff aside to support his teammates yes and so you have to imagine if what we are being forced to reckon with right now is that Black people are murdered um, because they are considered and treated differently than their white counterparts. Then surely black people are also being passed over promotion for promotions and not heard in a conversation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and perpetually and at all times. And so, um, so I appreciate you giving that example of just, um, conflict is not war necessarily so sometimes in that white supremacy culture we've been led to believe that open conflict means that i'm basically being violent toward this friend of mine or this uh business owner when really it's like i'm asking a polite question and then i'm going to follow up with some firm um you know follow through but yeah and and christians used to be so much better at this which Mm. is having what what uh, 
Christian historians have called a Christian imagination, especially when Christians uh, didn't believe in violence. What a concept. And so they had, they literally had to imagine ways to, to um, engage in conflict that weren't violent. And that required this imagination that much of the world didn't have. And so I think that we really need to engage that Christian imagination when I can, I can think of doing nothing and I can think of yelling in your face. Yeah. And so we've got to engage that imagination where no, there, there we have, to there's believe. another there's way, another of course. Way. And there's probably actually 10 other ways. I, exactly. And so that, I, I love that. I love that notion of the Christian imagination and, and I, you know, I'll probably continue to say in this season, though, I don't know with a hundred percent certainty, like I'm going to say that white Christians have got to get better at this and keep remembering because a lot of communities of color have continued to have these. Yeah. And in fact, yeah, I'm so glad you said that because I also feel like uh, uh, the black church specifically in my mind has, we have so much to learn from them in creative ways of, of resistance Mm -hmm. because they're schooled in that. Right. Yeah. Like, and because their life might be at the line if they did something that yes. isn't creative. Right. And have generations of practice. Of yeah, that that's right. Because they've had to. That's right. Yeah. Okay. So then um, the others all sort of like work to um, bolster the, the just general notion of question asking on the other um, tenants under interrogate. And so those are... Um, identify potential allies willing to ask hard questions and offer answers along with you, partially because sometimes that gives us the um, bravery to do what we wouldn't do otherwise. So it's kind of an accountability partner, we'll call it. (laughs) But also because, of course, we know that there's strength in numbers, right? And so that's, that's the other thing. You mentioned that there could be like a bunch of people of color who've been feeling a certain way, but sometimes there's a lot of white people who all also feel really uncomfortable about the way that a system is oppressing, but everyone's been sort of like conflict avoidant and quiet. And so if you can talk and reach out and figure out who else is on the team, now you've got a loud, strong voice together instead of just being that guy. I'm the only one who feels this way. Yeah. Um, So, uh, yeah, I want to ask you about that because part of what I'm hearing from you is that uh, there may be, if we want to go with the hypothetical that we're talking about, you know, work situation or whatever, I think a lot of times a white person's um, reflex might be to go directly to the people of color as the as the um, the allies in this situation. Totally. And so I just I want to know what you have to say about that. I think that there's kind of a, a history and a problem of. Uh, white people assuming their black coworkers are their friends. You know what I mean? <laughs> and not only that, I mean, that's one problem. Also, white people assuming that black people want to be the ones doing the work of making this uh, a less racist system instead yeah. of the actual jobs that they have. Yeah, right. You know, and also the assumption that black people have the stamina to do even another thing that white people bid of them to do. And so I think that it's really important. I was going to say earlier when you said the thing about like, maybe like this person would be a better position, be a better uh, choice for the position. Even then we need to be in communication with like, does that person of color want that role? Or are we just saying like, Hey, 
we hired you because you're a diverse person. And now every single time we talk about diversity or blackness or oppression, that's on you. And I get to talk about my area of interest, which is science, you know? Yeah. And I think too, this kind of goes back to, um, well, just learning to be a friend to the people of color around you Mm -hmm. so that you, you know, if they are interested in, whatever, taking that lead. That's or, right. Or whatever. And that's a whole other like thing as well. Yeah. Um, like there's, there's been a lot of talk lately about like checking in with your black friends and like, it's I, all over the place, isn't it? <laughs> well, the thing is, I just don't trust the tact of the average white person to do that. So I'm kind of like, well, yeah. I gotta say, I've been getting a lot of white calls lately. <laughs> yeah, sure. Sure. And so like, I, even that, I think we need to make sure that we've earned the right to go there with them. Is your checking in about that person or is your checking in about your white guilt? You know, that's part of yeah. the question. Well, yes. And also you're, yes, you're absolutely right. And, but, and also I'm thinking of like, um, dude, every black person does not want to have a heart to heart with you about all this. Right. It's like, I really did the other day have like 10 people call and I, I am of the position, which black people feel differently about this because black people are not all the same, but I'm of the position that I am thankful for loving, you know, any love or reaching out or support. But it's also like, I did realize pretty early one morning, like, well, I can't have 10 one hour conversations today about how I'm feeling, you know? So, so yes, I guess what we're really trying to say about this is as we build allies and as we build a team, we have to do the nuanced work. And we'll probably use that word a lot in this season. People always want it to be so simple of like, either you should always ask your black friends to be a part of it. And it's wrong of you if you don't, or you should never put that on your black friends. That's putting another burden on them. Sometimes we have to do the messy work of saying, and I, and I will say that I've had a lot of people do this in the last few weeks and I'm so thankful for it of saying, Hey, there's this opportunity that's come up. I think you're very smart and capable and the right person to do it. I also can imagine that this is a hard time for you and maybe not where you want to invest your energies on behalf of white people who are trying to learn. So let me know or don't, you don't even have to respond to this. And I think people um, either don't have the imagination to figure out how to write something like that, or maybe even sometimes feel a little resentful, like, well, I can't be doing the both and, but I just, I think we have to. Yep. We have to. And that makes it hard. It makes like, it makes your job hard as a teacher because you can't say you can always do these five things, you know? That's right. Um, but yeah, it has to be, we have to use tact and it's, it's contextual. It really is. And it, and it always is going to be. So if we can just like sort of swallow that, we'll go through life a lot easier. I think instead of every time fighting the notion that it's contextualized and nuanced, it's just, just know that's how life is. Yep. And, and also that we might not always get it right. That's right. And I, I'm happy to see there's a lot of that out in the ether right now that that's part of it and you know what you might get it wrong and someone might come for you and that's part of trying yeah falling forward yeah yeah okay and so then the other two um bullets are check in with individuals and groups who might have been negatively impacted by a comment a situation a program a policy to help you have a sense of what to question with power players so this is kind of related but not exactly what we were just talking about. It's the notion that 
maybe you go to your people of color or to your black friends and say, hey, I was thinking about going to the pastor to talk about um, getting more black speakers or whatever. I didn't know if you had any insights. It's not your job to have any insights. But before I just go in there with my white plan of what I think would be good, I thought I'd at least check in with you. Again, giving someone the opportunity to give their uh, perspective and also giving them the out to not if, it, if they feel it's your thing to do. And similarly, the last thing is using survey, focus group, or feedback loops to gather um, agency or, or contextual uh, specific data in order to better hold systems accountable. So that's like kind of another more like um, mechanical way of saying it's not so much gathering allies, but it's gathering data. So sometimes maybe you don't, you're not in a situation where you can talk to all of your uh, small group people or all of the teachers at your kid's school or something. But what you could do is send out a survey or what you could do is, you know, do a poll of some type. And then that might be another thing that helps you when you circle back around to the first thing we were talking about, the heart of interrogate, which is when you go to ask why have we not spoken out about this injustice or when can I expect us to have more teachers of color in my kid's school where there's 60% black students. If you're coming with some data, both um, situational, academic, and maybe even anecdotal, then that's going to, that's part of what you said earlier, which is like, you're helping already provide some of the answers for the administrator or the pastor or whoever, who might just be like, I have a sense that there's a problem, but I don't even really know what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. So, um, one thing this is making me think of, and I think maybe we'll talk about this, uh, maybe more when we get into the, the micro resistance, Mm -hmm. uh, section of the season. Um, but one of the things that I have discovered, I didn't come up with this, people smarter than me did, but that, that Jesus was really good about mm-hmm. was asking what we call, um, or being what we call compassionately curious. Yeah. And so, um, so we can practice this. I'll give a, a micro resistance example. You know, uh, somebody, somebody says, you know, really people say black lives matter, but really all lives matter. So like, how can we engage in that? Mm. And, and, or again, like at, at work, at church, you know, somebody in leadership makes a comment that's racist or problematic, or there's just not uh, a good representation. Um, start with, with questions and you, that's part of the interrogate, right? Yeah. It's like we ask questions. So like, Okay, what what makes you um, say that or think that? Like, help me understand. That's right. Um, where you're coming from, and so we we ask compassionately curious questions, and I think that um, that that helps us to it's it's that other way, right? Between like yes, guns blazing, yeah, exactly, yeah. or nothing, right? That gives us a way forward. Yeah, it's one of my all-time favorite phrases, help me understand, because for one thing, it situates us immediately in humility. Like, could you help me understand you? And then in many relationships, again, at this point, we're talking about a micro example, but um, in many relationships, there might be reciprocity. And it's like, now you help me understand 
why you think differently. And before, I mean, we know there are some relationships where there will not be reciprocity, but at least you will have done the compassionate curiosity thing before moving on. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking is like, none of this is a guarantee that it goes well. That's true. Uh, But we can't control other people's reactions. Um, And so I think that's where where you're talking about. We come in with kindness and compassion. And then if we need to, we get more firm. And then if we need to, we bring in other people on it. Yeah. And I think that um, uh, we, we know that we know that like in helping, I, I hate it when people say, I, I don't, I'm not going to do anything because I know it won't help. And it's like, well, I think part of our Christian ethic or at least a Christian ethic is to do the right thing for the right thing's sake. Not because you, you are certain of victory or change, but because it's like, this is the right thing to do. That's right. That's right. It's being faithful. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I I don't, um, I, I wonder what you think about this, Carrie. Like, I wonder if there's some circumstances where, again, let's go back to our, our, uh, work job scenario if sometimes there's a time where we have like a come to Jesus moment about like greater, you know, injustices, racism that's permeating the culture. And maybe there's some times where we also just say, um, Hey, I've got this literature about how like more diverse organizations are actually more effective. And because I care about this organization, I want us to be successful. Like, I wonder if you'd take a look at this and if it would, you know, totally be helpful. I, I think we're going to talk about that more in the disrupt section, which is the next episode. But yes, that's obviously the next step after that you're interrogating or even like concurrent to interrogating. Sometimes you're just disrupting someone's misinformation or misunderstanding or lack of thinking about something. So I think that's also very important cool. and a good teaser for next time. <laughs> yeah. I will close us with a prayer from Ordinary Blessings by Meta Herrick Carlson. It's called A Prayer for the Nation. It is easy to forget how young we are. Still a great experiment. Neighbors bound by ideals and yet so often disjointed without them. The progress and backlash can make us dizzy with hope and fear. For this is not organized or linear work. Still becoming. We ride the rhythms of our country's better angels and deepest shame, so much striving in vain since we do not remember every member or confess with our whole heart. And so we keep breathing and labor through these contractions of civilization, shouting in pain, pushing on instinct, desperate to meet the one we are still making, to hear her cry out, alive and free.